0: Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to read 17 to 26, and today we're going to look at an amazing passage, and it's Jesus' power to forgive sins. Uh, This occurs early in Jesus' ministry. It's recorded in all three uh, synoptic Gospels. Uh, I think Luke is probably the most detailed, and it's totally amazing, so we'll read uh, 17 to 26. Now, it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And the word them applies to the crowd, not to the Pharisees. Then behold, men brought on a a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring him in and lay him before him. (coughs) And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And the word for tiling there simply means, in Greek it means clay. They dug a hole in the clay roof and let him down. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed. And they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. As the Gospel accounts regarding Jesus, mighty miracles have unfolded. We have seen our Lord's unique person, He is the Son of God who possesses amazing powers and authority. He has power over the demons. He has power over sicknesses. He has power over birth defects. He has power even over the weather and over the waves and over the nature itself. <clears throat> he has healed, cast out demons, and he's even performed a miracle over nature. With the story of the hearing, healing of the paralytic The Synoptic Gospels carry the revelation of Christ a step further with a focus on Jesus' divine prerogative to forgive sins. (coughs) Earlier in his teaching, our Lord revealed that he had come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, for the captives. Luke 4.18 Man's captivity or enslavement to sin and Satan will come to an end with the cross and the empty tomb. Here in this chapter, Jesus' role as the Savior is placed in the forefront. And this role will place him in direct conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees. Before we look at Jesus' forgiving power, the power to forgive sins, and, and his healing to prove that he has that power, let us first examine the setting of the miracle. The setting is set forth in verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. You could paraphrase that, to heal everyone who came to him. Here are the antithesis between Christ's religion of pure grace and the merit system of the Pharisees begins to be noted by Luke. There's going to be a conflict between the leadership of the Jews and Jesus in the Gospels. And we see that especially in the Gospel of John. This is the first mention of the scribes and Pharisees in Luke's Gospel. What we are made aware of is that the scribes and Pharisees were carefully watching and evaluating the Savior wherever he went. They're keeping an eye on Jesus. Jesus. And of course, somebody who was doing what he was doing, you would expect the religious authorities to take a a very close look at him. They were there when he taught and healed publicly. There were representatives from Galilee, Judea, and even Jerusalem who were there to scrutinize what Jesus taught and what he did. (coughs) The Pharisees were by far the most popular of the three Jewish sects Uh, During the days of our Lord, the other two being the Sadducees, a political ruling class primarily who tended to be very wealthy, and they were the liberals of their day. They did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They did not believe that uh, anything beyond the five books of Moses was inspired by God. They did not treat it as having equal authority with the Torah, and they were generally the liberals of their day. They would be similar to uh, religious liberals today. Although, obviously, not as bad as the ones today. They're even worse. They denied the authority of everything outside the Torah and rejected the resurrected from the dead. They were mainly popular with rich power brokers. And then there, of course, were the Essenes. The Essenes only numbered, according to estimates, around 4,000 in all of Syria Judea. And they held to a rigorous self-discipline and had monastic tendencies. And they were influenced somewhat by Greek thought and we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from them. And uh, they had the Essene community, uh, which is ascetic, but, but they don't really play a major role in the New Testament at all. <coughs> the Pharisees were politically conservative and held to the resurrection from the dead. They were zealous for the law and attached a supreme importance to the oral law. This is where they're going to be in conflict with Jesus. This was supposedly an oral, unwritten law given to Moses by God that was found in all the Jewish traditions. And by the way, uh, Roman Catholicism teaches something very similar to this, as where, according to the Pharisees, when God delivered the law to Moses, he also delivered this huge oral tradition, which is reflected in their, the Mishnah and their, their writings. Well, the Roman Catholics believe that not only did the apostles receive the... Uh, and the evangelists received the New Testament, but they also received a big body of unwritten traditions. And it's up to the church to tell us what these are through history. Very similar. Romanism and Phariseeism are very, very similar religions. They view the written law through the lens of the supposedly oral law. And they view the oral law as a hedge and protective fence of the Torah these oral traditions would eventually be written down in the Mishnah around AD 200. That's when it was completed. And the people regarded the Pharisees as the most accurate and faithful interpreters of the law. And the legal material of, uh, of the Mishnah is described as halakha, which literally means walking. How do, how do we walk? How do we live? And they formed legalistic requirements for virtually every aspect of life. How many steps are you allowed to make on the Sabbath? Are you allowed to light a candle on the Sabbath? I mean, they had little minutiae of rules for everything. Very legalistic. And they butted heads with Christ, because Christ did not regard anything man-made as having any authority whatsoever. Jesus would come in conflict with the Pharisees in at least two major areas. The first was our Lord's complete rejection of the oral law and the mass of Jewish traditions. Christ did have nothing to do with these human additions, and he condemned them and said that the effect of these additions was to cause people to ignore and break God's law. We read about that in Matthew chapter 15. We read about the parallel account in uh, Mark chapter 4. <coughs> Coupled with these, this condemnation of human traditions was Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees' pride. The Pharisees' loved the special honor paid to them. Their legalism and their man-made rules were coupled with self-exaltation. The phylacteries were made to be conspicuous. They dressed in a certain way. They prayed publicly so people could see how much they prayed and think how pious they were and so forth. And then the other main difference between the Pharisees and Jesus was on the doctrine of salvation, and this is the critical issue for today. The Pharisees believed in salvation through law-keeping, through human merit. They greatly, of course, externalized the law, made it much easier to keep, and believed that pious Jews could actually merit eternal life. And, of course, Christ deals with that in Matthew chapter 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where he refutes how they had watered down the law, and Jesus says, no, 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 the law... Uh, applies to your thinking, it applies to your heart, it applies to your words. It doesn't just apply to the outward act. And once you realize that it applies to the heart and your thinking, then everybody needs a Savior. And the question of whether you kept the law or not is settled once and for all. Nobody's kept the law even close. The set that arose with Jesus, who taught that no one could merit eternal life, and that man's only hope was faith in him and the cross. No one had a claim on God. And in Luke 17.10 we read, So you also, when you have done all that is commanded, you say, we we are unworthy service. we have only done what was our duty. The whole idea of merit ignores man's sinful nature and the fact that even our best works are tainted with sin. Modern Judaism is the child of the Pharisees. They were the victors. Modern Judaism it's not a religion of the Old Testament. It's not a religion of the Bible. It's a religion of the Mishnah and the Talmud. It's The Pharisees have, have won, and uh, that's why the Jews aren't even close to Christ. They hate Christ. They rejected both Christ and the Gospel because of their pride in self-achievement. People who are of the religion of merit, whether they're Muslims or Roman Catholics or whatever, or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, hate the religion of grace because it leaves man in the dust as naked beggars before God. Men cannot earn anything. The other group identified are called teachers of the law. These are the scribes who were the law scholars among the Pharisees. They were the theologians of the Pharisees who trained those who taught in the synagogues. (coughs) This account gives us the first theological collision between Jesus and the teachers of the law among the synoptic Gospels. Obviously, in the Gospel of John, there's some very early conflicts going on, but here there's, here's, we have the first one. The leaders in Jerusalem, from almost the very beginning of our Lord's ministry, were hostile to Christ and were searching out ways to oppose him. So they weren't these sincere, objective uh, people seeking truth. They were there to spy on Jesus and see how they could either trip him up or find some of his teachings that they could condemn before the people. Now, Luke notes that these opponents of Jesus came from far and wide. (laughs) Galilee, that's local Pharisees, Judea, and Jerusalem were sent to spy on Jesus from the power centers of the nation. And... In our scripture reading today, it was Luke chapter 6, and we see that people were coming all the way from Tyre and Sidon because of his power to work miracles in his preaching. We learned from other sections of scripture that the scribes and Pharisees were full of envy regarding Jesus, and they would develop the idea that our Lord used the power of Satan to perform his miracles. They couldn't deny the miracles. They were public, they were obvious, they were crystal clear. They couldn't deny them so they attributed him to Satan, and that's where Jesus has the, tells them, you know, uh, that it's absurd that Satan would be against Satan and fight against himself. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, before the story of the healing begins, Luke notes that the Lord was present to heal them. The them refers not to the Pharisees and scribes who were not sick, but anyone who was sick. <coughs> the point Luke is making is that the power to heal was present with Christ. This is a healing story where Jesus deliberately sets up an amazing miracle to confirm his own doctrine that he has the power to forgive sins. And we see this over and over again. The point of the miracles is not so people can just go, wow, that's amazing, what a great miracle. The point of the miracles is to exalt the person and work of Christ and to authenticate what he's teaching, to authenticate what he came to do, to prove it. This section of Scripture demands our attention, for it contains two miracles that prove our Lord's gospel doctrine. One, Jesus knows man thought men's thoughts. He knows what people are thinking. He's omniscient. And two, he can heal an incurable palsy. And that's basically, the guy was a paralytic. He couldn't move. Well, faith in Jesus' power to heal. In verses 18 to 19, the stage is set for the miracle. Then behold, men brought on a bed man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find out how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and led him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So the normal entry into the house, and houses back then, well, if you had any money, would have a courtyard. So the house was jammed with people. The house was surrounded by people. It was a, just a big jam of people. Roofs were uh, flat in the days of Jesus, by the way. They were flat. People enter, would entertain on the roof. And the men decide to get up on the roof and let the man down through a hole. The man suffers suffers from palsy, paraluo, which means he does not have control of his limbs. He's either paralyzed by a stroke or he's born with some kind of a condition where he has no ability to move his muscles. There's all kinds of conditions. Usually it could be nerve damage, it could be a number of things, but he's paralyzed. The English sounds as though they were removing tiles from the roof, but the Greek word keramos can also mean clay. The Jews made their roofs out of clay, and the men carved a hole in the roof in order for the man to enter. Okay, you wouldn't put... The the reason I bring... liberals make a big deal out of this. You, You wouldn't have clay tiles on a flat roof. You just wouldn't do that. Um but the word means clay. It doesn't have to be translated tiles. What is clear is that this man's friends went to extraordinary lengths to get him into the presence of Jesus. And their actions reveal their faith in Christ's power to heal. So their diligence in drawing nigh unto Christ is noteworthy, and it shows their faith. In our endeavors to draw near to God, we must come unto Jesus with the same zeal and dedication as these men. We must not allow difficulties to stop us or any obstacles to keep us back. We know that Christ is the source of salvation and all spiritual blessings. We must fanatically seek him and rest upon him for our salvation. And that's really obvious when you study Scripture. Christ is the only way of salvation. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He's our only hope of going to heaven. He's our only hope of removing sin and guilt. He's our only hope of being servants of God. If these men were so obsessed about finding a physical cure, we must take even more pains for a spiritual cure. People so often act as if Jesus was not really that important. They are too busy with worldly matters to focus on discipleship. And I remember when I was planning a, planning a church years ago in Michigan, and uh, I would witness to people. I witnessed to this guy who had a bunch of money. He was like a bank president. And he says, well, I go to church for, uh, he says, I go to church because I want to make business connections. I don't go to church to hear good preaching. I don't care about that. I don't go to church to learn doctrine. I don't really care about that. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. I go to church to make business connections and meet people. And at least he was honest. But it shows a complete disregard of Christ. We want to get close to Christ. They have no consciousness of their absolute need for a spiritual physician. And they deliberately ignore the fact that without Jesus, men die an eternal death, a soul crushing curse. Millions of people live and die in darkness. They go about their lives as if Christ really isn't important at all. And that's really shocking. And that should, you should not be like that at all. You should be meditating on Christ every second of the day. Why he is critical. Why he's important. Why we have to believe in him. Don't be a deluded fool. Look at your peril without Christ. You must count all things as rubbish. And focus all of your faith on Christ so that you will be justified and found in him. Of the Great Judgment Day. Yeah, there's a lot going on. The world's a crazy place. Life is very busy. It's very expensive. We live in times of great inflation, and our nation is run by complete satanic fools. But don't take your eyes off Christ. Now, after making a hole in the roof, large enough for their friend, they lower the man down on his little bed. This was not a regular bed. This was more like a mat with some stuffing in it, and they let him down by the four corners. Four men would let him down by the four corners, uh, either using material, or by attaching ropes to the corners. By skillful manipulating the ropes, or the sheets, or whatever it was, the man is set into the very presence of Christ. Right there in the middle of the room. Now here in verse 20, we see the kindness and compassion of Jesus. When he saw their faith, He said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. The perseverance and dedication of the the companions of the paralyzed man is seen by Jesus as an indication of their faith. They went to amazing lengths to get this man into Christ's presence. Why? Because they believed that Christ really could heal him. They had faith in Christ. They had faith in his power to heal The faith is one obviously directed to Christ as sovereign over creation. Jesus connects their faith to his forgiving of the paralytic. So the paralytic is included with these men. The paralytic believed in Christ. And who knows? He may have connected his malady to his own sin. That's the way Jews generally thought. Look at how I messed up. I must have done something. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, we only from the book of Job, that bad things happen to good people. God is sovereign. God's in control of all that. But certainly this man had faith that Jesus could heal him and that faith will result in his sins being forgiven. Our Lord, of course, never took sin lightly. He never told people, ah, sin's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't fret about your sins. As if they were somehow uh, excusable. We don't see that attitude in Jesus at all. He always treated sin as a deadly malady, as real guilt that could only be removed and forgiven by himself. Guilt is real. Your record before God, a record of sin after sin after sin is a real record of guilt. It can only be washed away by the blood of Christ. Jesus said to the paral- When Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, he is not simply saying something that God had done as Nathan the prophet did with King David in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. Nathan relays God's message uh, to David and says, Look, you're not going to die. God forgave you. God's going to forgive you for this. You're not going to die. And that's not the same as this. This is Jesus forgiving as God. Rather, he is proclaiming that he himself is removing that man's guilt forever. He is blotting out of his his sins completely, fully, and forever. This is the pardon that reconciles, that justifies and reconciles to God. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what's so amazing about this story. And this occurs quite early in Jesus' ministry. It's in, what, Mark 9? I mean, Matthew 9, Luke 5. The Greek says, literally, forgiven are your sins. Jesus is proclaiming that the cleansing of the guilty soul is more important than the healing of the physical body. People get sick, people die. We are everybody has to die unless you're alive when the rapture happens. Everybody has to die. And you're going to get sick. And it's one thing, it's wonderful to be healed, but nothing is more important than having your sins forgiven. Christ had the divine power and the prerogative to forgive sins, and he connected the receiving of forgiveness not to good works, but solely to faith. Faith is the instrument, the alone instrument, which lays hold of what Christ has achieved at the cross and the empty tomb, his perfect righteousness, his cleansing blood. Solely by faith, solely through Christ. This is the first time that faith in Christ is connected to the forgiveness of sins in Luke's Gospel. Our Lord in this passage is not just instructing us on faith and justification (coughs) or on Christ's sovereign power to save whom he will, but he's throwing down the gauntlet against his enemies, the Pharisees and the scribes. He's throwing down the gauntlet against the false merit religion of the scribes and Pharisees. He's deliberately doing this. He's deliberately causing a confrontation. Deliberately. So we can learn about the importance of the salvation by grace alone. The religion of pure grace deliberately and forcefully confronts the religion of merit and we see here most clearly how Jesus' healing ministry <coughs> is designed to point men to the gospel. Now, how do you know all these faith healers today are a bunch of frauds? Well, besides the fact that they don't really heal anyone, and if you, you can watch things on YouTube about uh, Benny Hinn and these people, they have people, you know, they people come up to the front and they lay hands on them and they supposedly are slain in the spirit and healed. They have people who screen the audience, and when people have real bad maladies, you know, people being paralyzed in a wheelchair and things like that, they don't let them up there. They let people up there who can have a little psychological uplift and people think, wow, what a great miracle. They don't, the real sick people aren't allowed up, because these guys have no power to heal whatsoever. They're total frauds. But how do we know they're frauds? Not simply the fact that they can't perform miracles, but the whole point of the miracles points us to Christ in the Gospel. Is Kenneth H- Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, uh, Are these people preaching the gospel? No, none of them are. Not even close to the gospel. They preach the prosperity doctrine Christ is Santa Claus. So you can be rich and have whiter teeth and a nicer car. Let us see the grace and mercy of Jesus in this passage. The paralytic came to be healed. He did not come expecting Jesus to forgive his sins. And we do not know the level of this man's faith or his knowledge. But we do know that he had faith. The uh, The first words of Jesus have to do with sin, not sickness. Sickness and death are the consequences of sin. Sin is man's greatest enemy. If you didn't have sin, you wouldn't have death. If you didn't have guilt, you wouldn't have death. You wouldn't have hell. Jesus' statement, your sins are forgiven you, are in the perfect tense, indicating that the man is forgiven and is brought into a state of justification. This is an amazing passage. I mean, when you think about it, it's just really amazing what he's doing here. Well, let's look at the response of the scribes and Pharisees. In verse 21, the attack against Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders begins. And the scribes and Pharisees begin to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in verse 22, we learn that this was the thinking of these men. They were thinking it. The charge of blasphemy will be frequently leveled against Jesus, and it is the official reason that the Sanhedrin ordered the death of Jesus. You know, they, they flouted and asked him, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus says, it is as you say," And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Uh, and they tore their garments, and they condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy. Because Jesus was God, and he claimed to be God. This is all a conflict over the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? It is indeed correct that only God can forgive sin. God is the offended party. It is his moral law that has been broken. He is the source and foundation of all justice, and justification can only take place when the conditions for the removal of guilt have taken place. God alone can remove guilt and impute a perfect righteousness in its place. And he does so on the basis of what Christ has done. Now what this narrative is telling us is that Jesus is God incarnate, he is God, and he does have the authority to forgive sins. Which is pretty radical stuff. But that's what it's saying. Luke uses the word alone, his use of the word alone indicates that Jesus' actions place him on the same level of Yahweh, the God of Israel the only true God. The Christological implications of this passage are crystal clear, and they show us that very early in Jesus' ministry, the divinity of Christ is an essential aspect of the gospel. Jesus had to be both God and man to be a high priest between God and man. And also, he had to be God, a very God, to offer a sacrifice of infinite value. He didn't die for one man. He died for millions of people all over the world. The scribes and Pharisees are the supreme enemies of Jesus, and they approach his words and actions through their own false presuppositions. Jesus had been publicly demonstrating by his teaching and his miracles that he was no ordinary man or prophet. (coughs) And they keep their thoughts to themselves because they're in the midst of a people who think Jesus is just amazing. Now, they're going to turn on Jesus. They're going to follow their leaders, and they're not going to follow Jesus. When Jesus dies and is resurrected, his followers are very amazingly quite small. And then let's look at Jesus' confrontation of the scribes and Pharisees. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts which is, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Matthew's account uh, 9.4 says, Knowing their thoughts. This statement reveals our Lord's divinity. Jesus knows what people are thinking. Paul's words describe his abilities. Hebrews 4.13, All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows what you're thinking. He knows everything. And the fact that Christ knows exactly what these men are thinking is amazing. And one would expect it to have some effect on the scribes and Pharisees. evaluation of Jesus. but it does not. You know, demons can try to imitate miracles, but demons don't know what people are thinking. Only God does. And the reason it doesn't change their evaluation of Jesus is because they've made up their minds that Jesus is a false prophet. (coughs) The conflict between the scribes and the Pharisees that runs through the Synoptic Gospels and, and the Gospel of John starts very early. Now, Jesus challenges their mind question with a counter-question. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk? And this is a very, very clever question. The stain of guilt for sin is something invisible to the human eyes. And you see stories, you know, the guy next door turns out to be a serial killer, and he's murdered 20 women and raped them and cut up their bodies. And people say, well, he seemed like such a nice guy. Well, because we don't know the heart. Only God knows the heart. We can't see the mountain of debt, the mountain of guilt that people have for sin. We can't see that. It's invisible. Anyone could theoretically proclaim the forgiveness of sins, and there is no empirical way to prove their statement to be either true or false. The implication is that such a statement can only be proved by something that is observable by the senses that cannot be denied. And we're taken right back to the importance of the sign gifts that authenticate the teaching and the person of Christ. Therefore, the second question about rise up and walk is very clever. For such a question is easily verifiable. You know, that's you know what's amazing how people millions of people, thousands of people follow these faith healers, these prosperity gospel guys, and they're obviously frauds. Jesus was doing miracles where limbs would grow on, where people were completely paralyzed, where people were blind from birth. You don't see any of that today. No one would dare say such a thing unless he had the power to to back it up. To regard the forgiveness of sins as easier than healing someone (coughs) completely paralyzed may seem out of keeping with the biblical world and life view. But the argument is not based on the inherent value of the acts themselves, but on their efficacy as proof to a skeptical audience. A visible healing simply cannot be denied. It is solid, irrefutable evidence. It cannot be denied. Here's a guy who's been paralyzed. We don't know how long he's been paralyzed, maybe since birth. Everybody who knows him knows that he's truly paralyzed. And Jesus heals him. You can't deny that. To say, rise up and walk and not back it up with a genuine miracle would immediately expose a person as a phony, as a false prophet, as a false teacher. This section shows us the importance of the sign gifts as proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. To claim to do only what God can do should only be believed on proper biblical evidence. And Jesus is totally willing to provide that evidence, and he does it over and over. I mean, read the Gospels, they're just full of miracles. Miracles where he knows where the fish are or he brings the fish into the nets. Miracles where he controls the wind and the waves. Miracles where he casts out demons. He has complete power over the elements. The great sin of the scribes and Pharisees is not a mere disagreement over theology. The nature of salvation, the person of the Messiah, or the nature of the kingdom of God. It is also... this rejection of what is clearly absolute proof that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. They reject the obvious. They reject clear proofs repeatedly done before the people. So when you look at the destruction of Israel in Jerusalem in 70 AD, the war from 67 to 70 AD, it's fully just. They crucified an innocent man. They crucified a man that they knew was God, a very God. We believe, even though we have not seen, we haven't seen any miracles. We haven't been eyewitness of what Jesus did on the earth. We're not eyewitnesses, and we're blessed for that. But they disbelieved in the face of absolute proof that Jesus was who he said he was. No man can witness a mountain of guilt disappear from a man's account. before God. But anyone can recognize immediately a paralyzed man get up and walk when he could not before. And Jesus will prove that his claims are not empty but absolutely true. Our Lord's challenge tells us that Jesus' ministry with its manifold amazing signs was not a mere peripheral matter that could be easily dismissed from the biblical testimony regarding Christ. Remember, there are several testimonies. He had the testimony of prophecy. He had the testimony of the fact that he never committed sin his whole life. He had the testimony of the virgin birth. He had the testimony of the miracles. He had the testimony of God the Father speaking at his baptism, and so on and so forth. The miracles substantiate our Lord's claims in such a clear, undeniable manner that there is no excuse for not trusting in Christ. There's no excuse absolutely no excuse. Now, we do so based on the testimony of Scripture. But they were there. They saw it. It couldn't be denied. Now, let's look at the healing and its aftermath. (coughs) But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your own house. Immediately he rose up before them and took what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange strange things today. Verses 40, uh, 24 to 26. So Jesus will now prove that he has power to forgive sins. He's going to prove it. In other healings, our Lord at times attempted to restrict publicity. He would heal somebody privately. Don't tell anybody about this. But here in the face of his enemies, the very people who were leading Israel astray with a doctrine of salvation by works, Jesus publicly declares that this miracle proves his power to forgive sins. I am the Messiah. It's that clear. The statement that you may know means that you may know assuredly or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. No one can deny clear empirical demonstration. Jesus is the Savior sent from God, the one who came down from heaven to wash away our sin and guilt by his blood. And here our Lord also makes a messianic claim by referring to himself as the Son of Man. Now, The phrase Son of Man comes from Daniel 7.13. Let me read Daniel 7, 13 to 14, a great eschatological passage. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, who's the Ancient of Days? Now, we know from Scripture that the Ancient of Days is God the Father, Yahweh. So Christ is coming with the clouds of heaven, Is this describing his second coming and descent to earth? No. It's describing his ascension. He's coming up to the Ancient of Days to be presented before him in the throne room of God. This is the glorification of Christ being described. This is a reference to the ascension of Christ where he comes up to heaven and receives all authority from the Father. Verse verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory. Glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, how much do the Jews know about this passage? The typical Jew? Probably not a lot. But we do know from extra-biblical sources that uh, preceded the New Testament the Son of Man in, in extra-biblical literature is called the Messiah, the elect one, the righteous one. Yahweh calls him my son. And the Son of Man was already accepted as a common title for the Messiah. Now, how many Jews knew about this? I don't know, but they can f- they found this in extra-biblical literature. After the Jews reject Jesus and Phariseeism becomes completely dominant, all the old Jewish interpretations about Things like Isaiah 53, Psalm 110, Psalm 2. And the Son of Man are eliminated in favor of the exaltation of the Jewish people. This ridiculous interpretation that Isaiah 50, the suffering servant is Israel. What blasphemy. Israel suffers for mankind. No. Israel's wicked. And they rejected the Messiah. Of the 69 times this title is found in the Gospels, it is always found on the lips of Jesus. It is our Lord's (coughs) self-designation. And there were Jews who regarded it as a messianic title. The one who has power on earth to forgive sins will set up a spiritual empire that shall never be destroyed. And if you read Daniel carefully, you're going to have the four great empires You're know you going to have uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And then in the midst of the Roman Empire, the stone will fall, which will crush all the empires before it, and there will be an everlasting kingdom. That is Christ. That is the Son of Man. Earth is the place where the fall into sin occurred, and where man was subjected to the guilt and slavery of sin. Therefore, Earth is the place where the forgiveness of sins must take place. So we see that earlier in Jesus' ministry, a full picture of Jesus as the Messiah is set forth. He has power over sicknesses, demons, nature, and even over sin itself. He is the Son of Man who will set up an eternal kingdom that can never be destroyed. So, the Gospel is quite clear. And this is very early. You know, in the self-disclosure of Jesus, uh, it's very bold. It's very clear. How much people understood because of their false presuppositions, we don't know. <clears throat> but clearly, what he's saying here is amazing. That Jesus tells the healed paralytic to take up his bed and go to his houses to show a perfect cure from a state of absolute helplessness. All of his muscles are now working Perfectly. Arms, shoulders, back, legs. He's not simply going to get up and walk out of the room. He's going to take up his bed and he's going to put it over his shoulder and he's going to walk out carrying his bed. He immediately stood up in front of them, the scribes and Pharisees, and all the onlookers. The instantaneous nature of the healing is emphasized, and the certainty and proof of the miracle is emphasized. Now the healed man glorified God. He acknowledged publicly that he was made whole by divine power. And the man <clears throat> thanked God and praised him for healing his body, but even more importantly, for removing the guilt of his sin. Like I said, we're all going to die. We're all going to get sick. Some people might die of a heart attack in their sleep. But you're you're all going to die. So the question of your the guilt of your sin is the most important question in your life. Uh, there are people that are heathen that take great care of the, their bodies who live to be 95 years old. But the moment they die, they go straight to hell. So I would rather have my sins forgiven than be some healthy guy who lives to be 100, who's a pagan. <clears throat> Jesus is the only saver from sin and guilt, and his power to heal any disease proves it. You want proof? Here's proof. Right in your face. Right in the midst. Now Luke's description of the response of the crowd ends the narrative. They were all amazed. They glorified God and were filled with fear. The word for amazed is a very strong word. You know, shock and awe. We would say they were blown away. They were, they were pinching themselves. They, they had witnessed something totally mind-boggling. They glorified God. And they gave him the credit for the miracle. you remember the day 9-11 happened. You saw those people staring at the buildings in disbelief, in shock. Well, take that times a hundred. The imperfect tense is used, indicating that they kept on glorifying God. They recognized that God was at work, and they gave him all the glory. And they were filled with fear. They not only witnessed an amazing miracle, but they saw Jesus forgive the the sins of the paralytic. Jesus appeared as God and not only remitted sins, but proved he had the power to save anyone from sin. I mean, it's it's just shocking material. It's just mind-boggling. He had exposed his own divinity. Now, how much they comprehended, we do not know. They said to themselves, we saw something strange today. And the word strange means extraordinary, something contrary to normal reality. So we see that as Jesus reveals who he is to the masses and why he has come, the religious leadership cannot get beyond their own unbiblical presuppositions. They believe in salvation through human merit, not by grace, not through faith. They reject Christ's doctrine. And they reject Christ. It is so important that we allow Scripture to teach us true doctrine, the true way of salvation, and not listen to Roman Catholics, and not listen to Arminians, and not listen to modern Jews and Muslims, who all are satanic heretics, teaching a false doctrine of salvation, and therefore rejecting Christ. The Jewish people... Have the Torah, they have the whole Old Testament, which explicitly teaches Christ, the Christ of the New Testament, the Christ of the Bible, and yet they deny it. And they believe in salvation through works. And the Talmud talks about the scales of justice on the day of judgment. God's going to look at you, and do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get to go to heaven. Well, that's not how things work. God is absolutely infinitely holy. Even one sin merits the eternal death penalty. You have to have the blood of Christ to be forgiven of sin. All religions of human merit hate the truth and they persecute the true religion of sovereign grace through history. That's absolutely true. When the Jews had the power of persecution over the church, they persecuted the church mercilessly in the first century. God judged them for it in A.D. 70 of course for killing Christ too. When Roman Catholics had the power of persecution over Protestants, (coughs) they slaughtered the Protestants. For they're basically in the same spirit as the Pharisees and the scribes. They're Antichrists. So I hope you see here, very early in Jesus' ministry, he's presenting himself as the Messiah, the Son of God, who can forgive sins. Very early, The point of the miracles is to point us to Christ. The point of the miracles is to point us to who Christ is and what he has come to do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this section of Scripture. Help us to understand the importance of having our sins forgiven, that we would not take Christ for granted for even one second, that we would meditate on what He's done, direct all our faith to him, the bloody cross and the the glorious resurrection. And we know that he's right now interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. So when things look bad, we know that Christ is interceding for us. We know that we will persevere in our faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.